chapter 1. So Vic, our faithful brother, who's been teaching Sunday school class for I don't know how long now, it's been a long time, he was going to go to Romans after he was done with Leviticus, but he's going to, I think, retire from teaching Sunday school to care for Bev. So I've been going through Romans lately, kind of in my own studies and in talking to some friends of mine. So it's fresh in my mind. So I figured, you know, I'm just going to start with Romans if I'm given the opportunity to teach Sunday morning, I might just continue where I leave off and just kind of go through it. Um, so yeah, we'll start with Romans chapter 1. Who was Romans written by? Anybody? Paul, right on, to the Romans. So um, guys, I was asked to do this yesterday, so I kind of put this together last night this morning, so bear with me and I am leaning heavily on the, the commentators and, and whatnot. So so bear with me tonight. May the Lord be praised. Uh, before I start, actually, let's pray. Father God, we come to you this evening, and Lord, I want to divide your word rightly. I want to be accurate to, to what you have revealed to us, Father, through your word. We all here want to know what you say and to obey it and to live it out. God, I pray that you speak through me and you just teach us this night, Father, and allow this message to be applicable, um, apply it to our lives, let's put it that way. And God, we just love you, we desire you, we thank you, and bless this time. All right, so John MacArthur, he says, and I thought this was pretty interesting, he said that most, if not all, of the great revivals and reformations in history of, of our church, you know, have basically directly related to the book of Romans. Somebody reading the book of Romans, the Lord enlightening a person to the truths of what God says, and the Holy Spirit working through that for revival. I thought that was an interesting tidbit about this book. So it was also written that 32-year-old Aurelius Augustinus sat weeping in the garden of his friend. He was in the garden of his, at his friend's house um, in roughly the year 386 A.D. So he was there, this Aurelius weeping over his own wickedness, looking internally his own sin. How do I get rid of this weight, this burden of sin that I have? So he sat there, and as he was crying, he heard some school children singing this little chant. They were saying, Tali Lege, Tali Lege, they sang, which in Latin means take up and read, take up and read. So Aurelius, sitting there, he kind of took this maybe as a sign from the Lord, he thought. So he picked up a scroll that was laying right next to him, which was a scroll of the book of Romans. And the first passage that caught his eye as he sat there was Romans 13, 13 and 14. 
It says, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Now, Augustinus, later known as Augustine of, of Hippo, um, he wrote of this occasion saying, No further would I read, nor did I need. For instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, or security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. About a thousand years later, Martin Luther, his life, sort of like Augustine's, was nothing but inward turmoil. His inability to make himself righteous, it was eating him alive. He was eating him up. How can I be righteous before this perfect and holy God? How many good things can I do to make myself righteous? Through reading the book of Romans, especially verse um, in chapter 1, verse 17, it says, the righteous shall live by faith. So he read that, and the Lord instantly saved Martin Luther's soul through that. The righteous shall live by faith. And Luther writes about it. He says, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to go have gone through open doors into paradise. Praise the Lord. So John MacArthur, he also says about this, he says, about Romans. He says, it's been said that Romans will delight the greatest logician and captivate the mind of the consummate genius, yet it'll bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then it will lift you up. It will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. Can anyone else here attest to that through reading the book of Romans? I know I can. I remember when the Lord saved me, and it's only been, what, five years where he truly touched my soul, um, that I recognized my sin. I truly turned to Christ Jesus by his grace um, in faith. And I spent a good year in the book of Romans just studying it. What does God say? You know, what is the true gospel? I've never heard it like this before, you know, in all my years of growing up. So, you know, the beauties of the doctrines of grace, of, you know, the doctrines of grace, they just came alive to me. And before that, as a false convert, I was thoroughly Arminian. And I would have argued, you know, against the doctrines of grace, and I did. But I tell you, with opened eyes to see the grace of God and my own depravity, what a beautiful book Romans is. Oh, let me see, did I finish that page? Yeah. 
All right, so Romans 1. And I'm probably just going to get through, we'll see if I even get through it, the, just the first greeting portion, so verses 1 through 7. So we're going to go through this one verse at a time. So verse 1, and I'm reading out of the ESV tonight. I don't have my New King James Version. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. All right, so that word servant here, maybe yours says bond servant. It actually translate, tra translates from the Greek word doulos, which literally means slave, or one who gives himself up to another's will, devoted to another, to the disregard of one's own interest. So in this time that Romans was written, there was most, most likely millions of slaves in the area. So when he uses this word, doulos, it carries with it all that you think of that word slave would carry with it. I mean, in those days, slaves were ones that, I mean, they were your personal property, and you could do with your personal property as you will. Even kill your own personal property as they saw these people. Um, so here, when Paul uses this word, it implies subservience and insignificance, not honor of self, but I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul was using this word doulos um, to imply just that, that he was, in fact, a servant of Christ Jesus and called by God to be an apostle. So, um, Paul, right, and all of us, all of God's children are happily and joyfully slaves. So this isn't just a, man, I don't want to be a slave, I don't want to do this. But when the Lord converts our souls, when he, we recognize Jesus as beautiful and how he is a kind master and how he loves his children and the promises that we see, eternal life, um, we joyously serve him. And we joyously say, you know, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So, Paul and all of God's children are happily and joyfully slaves of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it says, called to be an apostle. Paul is here establishing the authority of his ministry. He is saying that I was given this calling by God himself. So he wasn't elected by a committee to be an apostle. He didn't volunteer for it. Paul was appointed by God himself. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, you don't need to turn to it, but it says, I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So, Paul knew that he would, in fact, be chastised if he didn't obey what his calling was from the Lord. And really, that's the same with us. The, the Lord calls us to be ministers of the gospel and to different tasks. As Pastor Daniel has said, and we talked about earlier today, actually, um, we're all given a specific spiritual gift 
at conversion to be part of the body of Christ. And we are to um, seek out what that gift is and to utilize it for the glory of God. I've found that my gift is evangelism. All are called to evangelize, but some are given that gift. Um, praise the Lord, he gives me the grace to be able to teach and, and preach up here, but that's definitely not my calling. Um, but we are to be obedient to that. So apostle here, that word apostolos is what it means or is what it's translated from. It means a delegate or a messenger. So one sent forth with orders. So in its broadest sense, maybe the small a apostle, not the large a like Paul the apostle. The term can be used for every believer since all Christians in a way are sent to proclaim this message and herald this message of Christ Jesus. So the term apostle in the Bible is primarily used with the, the big A apostle, you know, the 13 apostles, 12, you know, with Matthias replacing Judas, and then um, also Paul being called to be an apostle. It would typically refer to them when the Bible talks about apostles. So this official title of large A apostle was for those that Jesus personally chose and sent to proclaim the gospel and to lead the early church. So all of them also witnessed Jesus' resurrection. So they witnessed to and could testify to the fact that Christ Jesus did, in fact, um, raise from the dead, validating his whole ministry. So... Can anybody tell me when was it that Paul was made an apostle? When did that happen where he encountered the risen Lord? Yes, ma'am. On the road to Damascus, that's true. So these apostles were given gifts of healings, casting out demons, and these were all part of, of their calling at that time to start the church, the great revival that the Lord used to build his church. All right, so the verse, it concludes with that verse 1 of Romans 1. says, set apart for the gospel of God. So some, some think that Paul is here making reference to him formally being set apart to the Pharisaical sect which he was. He would be distinguished from all other sects. He was a Pharisee, you know. So that's what he was. Perhaps he was making reference to that and that now he is set apart unto the gospel of God. I leave that behind. The Pharisee, the, the titles, any other achievement I have, I am set apart for this duty, this task. Other New Testament later, letters deal with the church and its problems and challenges. That's pretty much every other letter that, that's written. But Romans, it focuses on God. That's the primary focus of, of Romans. God is the main focus and his gospel, how we are saved. God's redemptive plan. So interestingly, in the book of Romans, the word God is used 550, 
or I'm sorry, 153 times. Law, the word law is used 72 times. The word gospel is used 60 times. Sin is used 48 times and so on. And faith is used 40 times. So these are kind of the, the things that, that Roman really hits on. Who God, who he is, his law, Christ, the gospel, sin, you know, Jesus, Lord, and faith. These are some of the main themes of the Bible or of Romans that continue to recur. So gospel, we all know this gospel or I'm going to get this wrong. Euangelion, Euangelion is the Greek, I think is how it's said. But it's basically defined as glad, glad tidings. So gospel or Euangelion was the term, term used for one heralding good news in the town square. So when the culture back then, they kind of worshipped the Caesars, right? That was kind of their, they would worship whatever they said, and they would send out, so if something good happened, they would send out these heralders of, they would call the gospel, and so it would be like, good news, the emperor's wife gave birth to a son, and they'd go out and proclaim that to all the, all the people. So everybody in the town square, oh, the, the, you know, we have a prince coming, sort of thing. So the gospel of God is, in fact, the same sort of thing. It's, it's good news. It is to be proclaimed, to be heralded, that there is freedom from the burden of sin through Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul was set apart to, to proclaim this gospel. So in a sense, all believers are set apart from this world for the gospel unto God, to share and proclaim the gospel in, in many different ways. Not everybody's ministry looks like mine or the other guys that go to the streets and evangelize. We have a group here at the church that are specific, specifically called for that type of ministry, but each one of us are called in our specific areas, locations where God has placed us, our families, our work environment, to proclaim the gospel as we as we are called to do it. Um, we are to have acts of service. We are to be loving and kind and to serve our neighbors. Um, but we don't leave that unattached to the gospel. We are to attach the gospel to that. All right, verse 2. Verse 2 says, Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I love what the Bible commentary commentator David Guzik says. He says, this gospel is not new and is not a clever invention of man. Paul's world, right, back in the day of Paul, was much like ours with people who liked the new teachings, right, and the new doctrines. Nevertheless, Paul didn't bring something new, but something very old in the plan of God, unquote. So I, I grew up around a certain liberal-leaning university that most of my family went to, and especially the philosophy majors, that was and still is a big thing. I mean, they had itching ears for the new thing and to what's the new perspective, right? 
What's the, the new doctrine coming out? And, and if I can come up with the new thing, then I'm going to write a book and I'm going I'm to really push this new thing that I come up with. Well, I've heard it said, I'm, I've heard several preachers say it, I don't know who coined it, but they say, if it's new, it's not true, biblically speaking. And if it's true, it's not new. I think that's pretty accurate. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was no afterthought, but was God's plan before the foundation of the world. Yeah, sadly, I don't know if I was going to bring this up or not, but sadly I have a brother that's kind of, he's going for his doctorate in philosophy. And um, yeah, he's kind of stuck into that mindset of finding the new way, going to Romans on your own, apart from commentary, apart from, from sound doctrine that the Bible tells us to look to and to come up with your own perspective. And sadly, where he's landed is... You, you can get to heaven through Christ Jesus, even if you reject him now, but look to your own, your own God-given righteousness and your own conscience, and he'll accept you in the end. It, it is heresy, sadly, and I'm lovingly talking to him and trying to show him the scriptures, and I pray that he reforms and, and comes back to the truth of the gospel. And it's hard to see that with a family member, but... Yeah, we have to be so careful, and I'm really appreciative that on the prayer list that it talks about heresy and false doctrine not seeping into our church, that's such a good prayer for us to have. And we can pray that all the time to God protect our church body, let us be faithful to your word, and root out any falsehood that might try to creep in. So the Old Testament, right, the whole Old Testament it points to Christ Jesus. Every lamb that was slaughtered, I mean, it all points to Jesus Christ. And there is over 330 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. But sadly, many Jews then and still now, they reject their own Messiah in favor of a man-made tradition. So... second here. Flip over to 1 Peter 1. First Peter 1 verse 10. It says 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subs subsequent glories. It was revealed in them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. 
So what a beautiful thing the gospel is, Christ Jesus. The mystery revealed in Christ Jesus. All right, let's go to verse 3 of Romans chapter 1. Verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. What or who is this gospel centered around? Well, he answers it. The Son, Jesus Christ. It doesn't center around some moralistic teacher, but the Son. Just like the Son that we saw today, that Matt talked about, how beautiful it was. The Son that everything else revolves and orbits around. Our whole solar system. I mean, there is life that our sun, right? Our sun, celestial sun, it creates and sheds light upon. Looking, I mean, that just points to Christ Jesus, the beautiful Son of God. So firstly, this verse, I mean, it's talking about Jesus' humanity. The next verse is going to talk about his deity. So he was born from David, David's um, hereditary line, right? So both Mary, and this is interesting, I think Pastor Daniel has talked about this before as well, but both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 kind of have those genealogies of both Mary and Joseph who were descendants of, of David, and they list those, um, those lines so Jesus perfectly fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy, such as Isaiah 1, that says, I'm sorry, 11.1, 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So who is Jesse the father of? David, that's right. So there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse was the father of King David. So Jesus is that fulfillment of the, of the prophecy. And lest somebody ask, how is it that Jesus is the seed of Jesse if, in fact, Joseph was Jesus' stepfather? How was Jesus in that bloodline if he wasn't actually blood related to Joseph? Well, God took care of that. He answered that by Mary, who also was a, a, a descendant of David as well. So Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies regarding him being the Messiah. All right, so verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the previous verse, verse 3, was Jesus is fully man, born of a woman. But here, on the other hand, also fully God. 
So in, yeah, in verse 3, we saw that humanity of Jesus and now his, his deity. <clears throat> and that's called the hypostatic union. There's a theological term for that. The two intersect. Exactly how he can be fully, fully man and fully God, we don't know. But he, in fact, is. And we see that on the cross. Jesus is there in agony, bleeding, nailed to a cross, close to, to death in his humanity. But in his deity, at the same time, he's able to grant eternal life to a repentant thief right next to him. Moments before his death, possibly, the thief's death. death. So, John MacArthur, he goes on to say, he says, The second person of the Trinity was born into a human family and shared human life with all other humanity, identifying himself with fallen mankind, yet without sin. He therefore or thereby, I'm sorry, became the perfect high priest, holy God, yet also holy man. This is the gospel, that in Christ Jesus, God became a man who could die for all men, a substitute sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, unquote. So Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. Psalms 2, 7 says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Matthew three seventeen, right after John the Baptist baptized Jesus, a voice from the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> And as I said a few minutes ago, the greatest proof of the deity of Christ was his resurrection from the dead. It, demonst it demonstrated a power belonging to God alone, God himself. Nobody else can raise themselves from the dead. So him raising from the dead demonstrates God's power alone and that his power <clears throat> excuse me, bears witness that Jesus Christ is indeed God the Son. Verse 5. <clears throat> Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So Paul here speaks to the blessings and effect that the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ has. You know, firstly, it's grace. Saving faith comes by way of God's grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. It's unearned. Like our baby Leah, who's in the nursery. I mean, she was born into our family and we love her. She didn't do anything to earn that. She didn't choose to be born. It's unmerited favor. We love that cute little girl. So by grace you have been saved through faith, says Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So grace is God's loving mercy towards his children. 
So secondly, first we have the grace, right? And secondly, we see the effect. We see Paul speaks of apostleship. And this is, you know, most likely a small apostleship that he's talking about here. So, he, you know, I believe Paul is talking about all believers sent by God. <clears throat> so we are saved by the grace of God, and then we are given apostleship, given this message that we, we carry forth. So the effect of the gospel is God's grace to save some and they're calling in Christ to be the king's ambassadors, as we're called to be. So, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> like Paul, every believer is called to the obedience of faith, as we see in this verse. That is an obedience to the whole counsel of God's word. And what a blessing it is that here we, we don't leave out any of God's counsel. We want to know all of God's word, all of it, not just parts of it, not what, you know, people want to hear, but what, man, what is God saying? All of it. <clears throat> and taking this, this message to the nations. I mean, we do that in our evangelism by going to Las Vegas and New Orleans. So in Las Vegas, you have people from all other nations coming there to party and and drink it up. So when they hear the gospel, Lord willing, they take back with them literature to their nations, to whatever situation they're from, or ethnicity, or, or whatever. And, you know, others can do that online as well. Vic does that all the time on Quora. He probably, imagine, he talks to people all over the, the world. And these messages, too, I know Pastor Daniel, at the report every year that we have during our congregational meeting, <clears throat> there's a a report about sermon audio and Facebook, I think, and all the different countries that are reached by these messages that Pastor Daniel gives on, on Sunday mornings. And it's quite amazing how the gospel, the truth of God, goes out all over the world now. So Peter was charged primarily to take the gospel to the Jews, while Paul was primarily to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We are to do both, Jew, Gentile alike. Share the word. All right, verse 6. <clears throat> Let me get a drink. <clears throat> All right, including you <clears throat> who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So Paul is specifically, he is emphasizing that his audience here, the Romans specifically the Roman Christians, are called to servitude. They belong to Christ and must be obedient to him. All right, the last verse, verse 7. It says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the benefits of being the Lord's are endless. And what a gracious privilege it is for us to be called God's beloved, to be loved by God. We are his called ones, his children. And we can rightly respond, Abba, Father, my God. Sadly, there are many who presume upon 
the saving love of God. Assuming that they are recipients of this personal loving you know, affection of the Lord that we see the Bible talk about, <clears throat> but they haven't truly repented and aren't trusting in Jesus Christ. So these, these deceived people, and I run into them all the time, they know nothing about the true gospel, nothing about their own sin and wretched condition, repentance and faith in Christ Jesus, Jesus being, you know, our sacrificial lamb. They know nothing of these things. And they attempt to climb into the loving arms of Jesus by comforting themselves with scriptures that are meant only for believers, only for those that are Christ's or to become Christ's. They try to enter heaven by circumventing the cross, circumventing the gospel, <clears throat> but they cannot. It's only the saints of the Lord who are his beloved. And this should make them jealous when they see our relationship with Christ Jesus, when they see how we act and respond to life when things come they see the joy and the hope that is within us it should make them jealous for Jesus for what is that and bring them to repentance and faith I mean part of the reason Paul was sent to the Gentiles was to make the Jews jealous man their their hope is in Christ Jesus you know, and to possibly bring them back to God in true repentance. So the only saints are the only ones that are God's beloved. And, he, and we are the only ones that will be sheltered from God's wrath. So Paul finishes off this greeting with a blessing. And this is a blessing of grace and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. So may the Lord bless you and our church with grace and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, what a privilege it is. Yet sinners, yet unworthy, Christ died for us. And God, you made a way when there was no other way. And God, we thank you for that. And we worship you for that. Help us, Lord, to be ambassadors for you, to search your scriptures, the whole counsel of your word, to long to know it, to long to implement it into our lives, rightly to bring you glory. Father, we do love you and we worship you. In your son's name, amen.